Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you, Holly. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. That's so good to see you. I'm so glad that you are here today studying the Word of God together. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Is there anyone here uh, for the first time today? Raise your hand if this is your first time to come to Women in the Word. Um, not sure I see anyone out there, but if you're here for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you came as well. I am Deb Haygood, and I am part of the teaching team for Women in the Word this semester. And I'm actually part of Team Ezra. Team Ezra is made up of Amy Foster and Vanita Jones and myself, and we're studying through the book of Ezra. But we're going to finish it in a couple weeks, and then we're going to start looking at Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And Team Nehemiah is made up of Lynn Kitchens and Shelley Davis, and Vanita Jones will be teaching once for them as well. So just a preview of things to come. But today we're going to be talking about the word consider. Consider. You know, consider means to think carefully, to give careful thought. Consider. Now, there's many things that we have to consider every day. You wake up in the morning. I stood in my closet. I had to consider what to wear today. I had to consider I was going to be up here. So I didn't want anything too, you know, distracting um, or too horrible. Um, And I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I could find something that made me look a little thinner? But that's getting... Harder and harder to do. You had things you had to consider as well. Maybe you had to consider what to get when you went through Starbucks. You know, do I get that skinny uh, mocha latte or do I just get all the calories with it? Um, Maybe you had to consider what to put in your child's lunchbox. Some of you might be sitting there right now and you think, I better consider what to have for dinner tonight. So many things to consider. And I love little kids because they sometimes, you know, they just simplify it and give very little uh, considerations, maybe none at all. I was just with my grandkids recently, and my uh, oldest, Dylan, he's in kindergarten. Um, I noticed as he was getting ready for bed that his jammies, we call the pajamas, top and the bottom, were different. And so I said, uh, you know, Dylan, your jammies, the top, doesn't, you know, it doesn't go with the bottom. And he says, Grammy, that's called mismatched. And I like it. <laughs> I said, okay, that's cool. You know, it's, it's all cool. Um, so what do you like about that? He says, well, when I, you know, pull out the tops to my jammies and put them on, then I can just reach in and get whatever bottoms and put them on. And if they don't go together, it's mismatched. And I thought, that's great. That's, you know, easy. He, he didn't have to consider a thing. Just gra- I almost did that when I got in the closet this morning. And then I thought, no, I'm not sure I could pull that off. Anyway, the, these, or some of you are thinking I, I did. Okay, these things <laughs> aren't really that important in the scheme of things. But when Haggai said to the Israelites, consider, consider your ways, it was of the utmost importance because he was talking about their attitude towards God. So today we're going to finish up chapter 6 in Ezra, and we're also going to look at the words of God spoken to the Israelites through Haggai. So let's begin by turning to Ezra 6. Um, We're going to start in verse 13. Uh, And as you're turning there, let me say this. Um, When we come to the end of this chapter 6, 
before we start chapter 7, there is a big space of time, almost 60 years. There's a gap of time there, almost 60 years. So know that when you begin looking at your homework next week. Um, next week we're going to be in chapter 7, and this is when the second group of Israelites are going to come home to Judah under the leadership of Ezra. We're finally going to get to meet Ezra. And... Uh, Another little thing, the book of Esther takes place during this uh, almost 60-year period. So if you have time, it only takes about 30 minutes, read the book of Esther. It's exciting reading before you start your homework next week. Okay, so let's look at uh, verse 13. Read along with me. Then because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and his friend S.B. and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple, hooray, according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So we see in these verses kind of a review of what we learned last week. King Darius is issuing a decree that affirms the first decree that King Cyrus um, gave. And we read about that in chapter 1. King Cyrus, king of Persia, becomes the world power. And he allows the exiles in Babylon to come home to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And he says to them, rebuild the temple of your God, the God of Israel in Jerusalem. Rebuild the temple. We know that there was lots of opposition. They started and then they were opposed and they stopped and we've seen all this opposition and last week they're writing a letter to King Darius but King Darius writes back and says, let them finish the temple and do not interfere with it and give them all the supplies they need. The uh, physical supplies, the animals, the food, everything they need and pay for it out of your pocketbook and if you do not obey this decree, you the penalty is death and destruction of your home. So this was the decree. Wow. That is the hand of God at work. We're calling that the providence of God. God bringing his will to pass so that all of life lies under his control for the purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth. And we see in these verses everyone has a part. Everyone has a part. Tatnai and his uh, cohorts, they're doing their part with diligence, Ezra tells us. Yeah, they're taking that decree to heart. And then we also see the elders. Those were the leadership. They were working and rebuilding the temple. And where the leadership went, the others followed. And we see Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. They're speaking the word of God to the people. We read last week. They were stirring them up so that the temple would be rebuilt. And then we see that it is completed. The temple is going to be finished. We see that it happens in uh, the month uh, Adar, and that is the very last month of the Jewish calendar, and that is from the middle of February to the middle of March. That's where their year ends. And it's around 515 or 516 B.C., depending on how you look at their calendar and our calendar. And I wanted to point that out to you because you remember that the Temple of Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 586 B.C. Write that down and then subtract when the temple was completed, 516 B.C., and what do you get? 70 years. 
70 years. I thought that was kind of neat here. You know, completing the temple in Jerusalem was the task that they were to do as they returned to Judah because the temple was important. We've said that every week. This is where the presence of God dwelt. This is uh, where they came to worship, to offer their sacrifices. Everything about their life was following God, and the temple was central for that. So it was important for their spiritual well-being. So uh, it also is uh, a symbol of God's greatness. We want to remember that. He is awesome in this place. We just... Uh, saying that. So when the Israelites become discouraged and self-focused and they drift away from God, God speaks to them through his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And isn't it cool that the words that they spoke to the Israelites is recorded for us in those books, Haggai and Zechariah. And that's why I wanted us to look at Haggai today. I love it when we see the Bible all connected and working together because the Bible is really one story. It's the story of God's love for mankind. It's the story of God pursuing rebellious man with love and mercy and grace. It's one story, and so I love it when it fits together, and I thought we want to take a little time to look at Haggai. It is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, so I thought if we kind of go quickly, uh, we can do that. So let's turn uh, to Haggai. I hope you have it marked. It's at the back of the Old Testament. Three little books at the back, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are the prophets to the Israelites after they come back from the exile. And Haggai has four messages from God. And this first message we see in chapter 1. So let me begin reading verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And we know that this is the leadership, the political leader and the spiritual leader for the Israelites. Verse 2 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And I love Haggai because we're going to see that over and over again. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what God says. This is what the Lord says. Twenty-five times he says it in this small, short book of Haggai. He wants us to know this is God's word. And so God says, these people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. What we see there, God's saying, procrastination and rationalization. Now, um, those are big words, but we see it all the time. Little kids do it all the time. We say, pick up your toys, and they say, hey, I just started building the castle. Give me a few more minutes, and then I'll do it. Or, I've got to feed my dollies, Grammy, and then I'll pick up um, the toys. And what about me? They're my two favorite things, procrastination and rationalization. I thought this week of an example that um, someone told me as I was a young adult um, of Jesus. When you get up in the morning, picture Jesus sitting on the couch in your living room. And you walk by him as you go to the coffee. And he says, Deb, I want to spend some time with you today. I'm like, okay, Lord, let me get my coffee. All right, let me get dressed. And i got to make up the beds. Okay, I'll be right back. I'm just going to make lunch. Hey, I've got a couple of errands, Lord. I'll be after that. And then it's dinner. And what do you know? You guys know it. You're on your way through the living room, back to bed, and Jesus says, maybe tomorrow I can spend some time with you, Deb. I want to spend. Now, that's not a great analogy because we know that Jesus is always with us and we can talk to him while we're walking back and forth. But you get the point. Procrastination and rationalization, that is what the Israelites were doing here. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. He says, it is time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, while this house remains a ruin, is it 
time for this? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And other translations say, consider your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, never have a fill. You drink, never enough. You put on clothes, they're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in it. The Lord Almighty goes on to say, give careful thought. Consider your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. This house is the temple of God that they're supposed to be rebuilding. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and earth its crops. I called for a drought and so on and so forth. You know, I love Haggai because he speaks the words of God in a very straightforward, plain-spoken way. It's not a mystery what God is saying here. We understand perfectly what he's saying. You know, he's saying, you're not rebuilding the temple. Now, it's not about the, it is about the temple, but what's important about the temple is their heart for God. The temple and the rebuilding it indicated their heart for God, their obedience to God, following God, loving God, obeying him. You know, the ironic thing is when they follow God in obedience, all these things they wanted become blessings from God. He gives it to them as blessings. And without God, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how hard they tried, um, it was disappointing. Their efforts were futile. It was like one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two steps. They're getting farther and farther behind as they turn away from the Lord. God wanted them following him, obeying him, loving him. So consider your ways, he says. Check your priorities. Am I first? It doesn't really look like it. So let's go on and read verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and the whole remnant of the people. And that remnant there, that is uh, a name for the Israelites. It was those faithful few that followed God throughout the Old Testament. And now we see he's calling the whole remnant faithful to faithful people of God. And it says, They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up Zerubbabel and Joshua and the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. We know that that is 520 B.C. when they began rebuilding the temple. It took them about four and a half years to finish it. So what do we see here? As um, they listen to the Lord God, how do they respond? And the first thing we see is they obey God. They respond by obeying God. They turn back to God. And I want to tell you that Haggai is one of only two prophets, Jonah was the other one, that they actually listen to the words of God and turn back to him. So that's what we see. We see them obeying God. And the second response is... They fear the Lord. You see that at the end of verse 12. Now, we've talked a lot about fear of the Lord last semester when we were studying Proverbs, and we said the fear of the Lord is devotion and awe and reverence to God. We said it's that wholehearted and humble approach to a mighty, powerful, loving God. And the people, as they listen to God, they are filled with a renewed understanding of who God is. 
And it results in obedience and devotion and reverence for the Lord. And then a third response we saw there at the end, they get back to work. They get back to work. They finish the task. They complete rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the temple, finishing it, meant to glorify God, to glorify Yahweh. That was the name they had for God. It meant the personal God of Israel. So today we might want to consider, what is our first priority? Is it God? And if it's God, how will we respond to him? With obedience and devotion and work? On your verse sheet, I put Mark 12:30. This is Jesus telling us the greatest commandment. And he says, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And I thought when I look at that verse, I see loving God with our heart. That's devotion. And loving God with our mind and our soul, that's obedience. And loving God with our strength, that is work. So now, let's consider God's ways. As the Israelites, the remnant, turn back to God in obedience, and they get to work completing the task, what does God do? What's his response? What are God's ways? So we're going to continue on here. The first one, though, I see in verse 13 of chapter 1 when he says, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. He gives the Israelites his presence. He gives them his presence. And he has done that throughout the Old Testament. Joshua 1.5 on your verse sheet. This is God speaking to Joshua. And he says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives them his presence. And don't you all, you can think of times when you were scared or fear, fearful and you had to do something, and you thought, oh, if somebody would just go with me. And when they did, what comfort that was, what strength, what support that was. How much more so when we think the Lord is with us. God is with us. Let's go on and read uh, chapter 2 and see, uh, this is the second message of Haggai, see what uh, other ways we can see of God. And this was on the 21st day, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, and he says, speak to Zerubbabel, uh, speak to Joshua and to the remnant of the people and ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. You know, I see here another way of God is that um, he wants to encourage them. Now, we've already seen some of this back in chapter 3 when they set the foundation and some of them wept because they remembered the former glory of the temple that was built during Solomon's reign. Um, And we said how beautiful that was. And I had you look up in your homework so you could see that carved wood and everything inlaid with gold. It was glorious. It was magnificent. It was probably the most beautiful building any of us have ever seen. Some of those remembered it. Some of them had heard stories from their parents and grandparents about the beauty of that temple. And as they looked at the stones that they had to work with and the wood, they were probably discouraged, and God knew that. And so he wants to encourage them, and he says, Be strong. Don't let that get you down as you think about that. Be strong and work. And he says again, I am with you. Be strong and work. So the second thing I see, God gives them encouragement. 
why. Isaiah 43, um, I've put that on your verse sheet. It's talking about God being with them when they pass through the waters and the rivers and the fire. But I love the last part of it because it says, why? Because you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. God loves them and his presence is with them and he encourages them. And I also see that God gives them what they need. He gives them strength, physical strength and emotional strength. His presence gives them strength. Now, we already know he's providing the resources. We've got Tat and I and his buddies back um, at the ranch. They're providing the materials and the food and all that they need. God's providing for them in that way. He's also providing for them strength, physical and emotional strength. You know, you may be discouraged. You may feel that you need strength. Maybe you're thinking, um, I can't do anything for the Lord, or the work I'm doing for the Lord is not very good because I'm not as smart as this person, or I'm not as tall as that person, or I'm not as talented. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not going to do any work at all because I, I just don't have what it takes. Well, we know that we do because God's word tells us that he made us special. So if you look at on your verse sheet at Ephesians 2.10, this is Paul saying, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared certain works for each one of us to do as we follow him. And he creates us special to do that work. No one can do that work like we can do that work. So be encouraged and know that God has something special for you to do that only you can do. Don't look at anyone else and what they're doing. Comparison is always a disaster so don't go there don't look at other people look at this ephesians 2 10 and know that god has something special for you to do and he created that work just for you and then also know that god gives us strength philippians 4 13 says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me this is paul once again and he goes on to say in second corinthians 12 9 um, paul had a vision of jesus and jesus said this to him my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, Jesus is strong, and we see his strength in our weakness. So God gives us strength. He encourages us, and he also gives us what we need to complete whatever task it is for him. And then the fourth thing I see, God's way, verse 5, this is what I covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I see God wants to give them courage and take away their fear. And we know that they have much to fear because we've read that before. Everybody was up against them. There was much opposition. They had much to be afraid of. But God wants to give them courage and take away their fear. You know, we have opposition against us as well. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. And God wants to give us courage and take away our fear. One of my favorite uh, encouragement verses is Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He gives them courage and takes away their fear. And then in verse 6, <clears throat> let's read this part. It's a little confusing. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations 
and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill my house with glory. Okay, whenever we see this shaking of heaven and earth, we know that we're talking about um, the end times. We're talking about future times, when Christ is going to come again. And um, so, so Ezra is giving them a picture here of a future time. And it, when it says the desired of all nations will come and will fill this house with glory, that could mean two things. One, it could mean that the nations will actually bring their treasures to the temple in the millennial kingdom because we know all tongues will confess and all knees will bow. It could also be a reference to Jesus Christ. He is the desired of all nations and it will be the glory of God that fills the temple. One commentary I read said that maybe God had both things in mind and I would like to think that as well. Maybe both of these things are going to be true in the end times. And verse 8 goes on to say, um, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. What an encouragement that would be for the Israelites to realize, you know, everything is God's. He owns it all. It would not be hard for him to provide the resources to make this present temple more glorious than Solomon's temple. But God goes on, and this is the more important thing. He says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. We know that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus came, he was bringing lasting peace that only his presence can bring. And when he comes again, we're going to see peace on earth. So God is giving them a picture of the future times and with this he gives them an eternal perspective he wants them to have eternal perspective what you're doing what you're doing with rebuilding this temple is important because in the future jesus is going to come from you this prince of peace and there will be peace in this house you know having an eternal perspective for us today is important because what we're doing is not just about now and me but working in the kingdom of god it has an eternal perspective it has a future it's important what we're doing for the kingdom of God. Let's go on and look at verses 10. And let me just kind of explain what these verses mean. This was sort of tricky. But um, God is posing two questions to the priests. Now, they were the ones that understood the word of God. They uh, taught it. They could understand it. So the two questions, the first one is, it's talking about the law. If consecrated meat is in this holy cloth and consecrated meat, that's meat that's been prayed over, that is ready to be offered as a sacrifice, it's holy. And the cloth that carries it to the altar, that becomes holy. And so he's saying, if you put something else in that cloth, is it going to become holy? The answer is no. No, it, it will not. But he says, and then he refers to another law. Okay, if a human being touches a dead body, and we know from Leviticus and Exodus, touch a dead body, they are defiled, they're unclean. They had to do special ceremonial washings and things to become clean again. But while they were unclean, if they touched food, would it become unclean? The answer is yes. Yes, their uncleanness would be transferred to that, and that food would become unclean. Okay, here's an example. It sort of works that I thought of. Okay, you take chicken, raw chicken. You guys are going to cringe, and you're cutting it up on the board, and then you throw it in the pot. Then you take your celery, you put it right there, you chop it up, put it in your salad. Okay, does the bacteria from that chicken get on the celery and go, yes? And the answer is yes. That, that bacteria, the bad, can be transferred to the good. Okay, you take a clean, clean piece of celery, and you start wiping the chicken with that clean celery. Does that take the bacteria away from the chicken? No. 
You all know. And this is what God's saying. He's reminding them of their disobedience. When you have a heart that is really not towards me and you offer me sacrifices, that is not acceptable to me. It's, it's not a pleasant for me. I, I don't see any joy in that. And the, also it's true that just because you're working on this temple, this is a holy work you're doing, but your heart is far away from me, you're just going through the motions, working on that temple is not going to make you holy. God is saying, I want your heart turned towards me. I want you to love me. I want your devotion. And when that happens, I'm going to bless you. And he says, you've turned to me now. And so in verse 19 we read, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And then it's like there's this big now. From this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. What is God's way when we follow him in obedience? It's blessings. He tells the people it's blessings. We've seen this all through the Old Testament, and it's true today. When we follow God in obedience, we receive his blessings. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? You know, in my life, it's the smallest step of obedience I take, and God pours down blessing. It's when I finally turn to God and say, okay, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I'm giving it to you. And God's peace overwhelms me. It's like Karen when she just said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go on this trip, and I'm going to have a happy heart. I'm following you in obedience. That's what the Word of God says. And the next thing you know, God blesses her with exactly what she wants. And overnight, and I missed it somewhere, that is the blessings of God coming down on us when we are obedient. God gave the Israelites blessings. All right, let's go on and look at these last few verses. And um, this is really another prophecy because it says here, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. So we know we're talking about another future time when Jesus comes back. And this is a prophecy just for Zerubbabel. I'm thinking as the leader of this group, he needed some encouragement. And here it is. He says, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. This is all when Jesus comes back. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses, each by the sword of his brother on that day declares the lord almighty i will take you my servant zerubbabel son of shealtiel declares the lord and i will make you like my signet ring for i have chosen you declares the lord almighty the signet ring was a royal um authority it symbolized royal authority and so he's saying there is coming a king of kings that will take will that will rule over all the earth and he is coming from you, Zerubbabel. He will be from your line because I have chosen you. And you all looked up in your homework and we saw in Matthew who is in the line of Jesus as we go back. Zerubbabel. He's in the line of Jesus. And we know that Zerubbabel is in the line of David. David in the line of Judah, Judah, Jacob, Abraham, all the way back. So he is telling him, be encouraged. There is a glorious future Ahead, And he gives them this promise of a glorious future. When the Messiah will come. You know, we know that he's come the first time to redeem us. But he's coming a second time to reign in glory over all the earth. And we too have that hope and glory. Jesus is our hope. We are going to be a part of that time. Ephesians 1.18 on your verse sheet says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Jesus is our hope and glory. Now, I'm very fortunate that I grew up many years ago, and my grandfather was a preacher in a little country church in Indiana. And they talked a lot about heaven. I uh, sang a lot of songs about heaven. One of them was, I have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And we talked about heaven, what a glorious place it was. As a little child, I learned heaven was a beautiful place, and I was not afraid to go there. I knew I was going to be with Jesus and with Jesus forever. Last week, I thought about that as we sang, How Great Thou Art. And I don't know if you remember that last verse, but it says, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, What joy will fill my heart, and I shall bow in humble adoration, and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. We, too, have a promise of this glorious future. That is our hope. So let's uh, turn back now. That's the book of Haggai. I love that little book. Let's turn back to Ezra. And we're going to take about uh, six or seven more minutes and finish up these verses in Ezra 6. Now, we have talked about um, considering our ways. And we've considered God's ways. And now I want us to consider the outcome of following God. What was the outcome for the Israelites as they followed God? So let's uh, read, starting with verse 16. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. With joy. Okay, they have finally completed rebuilding the temple. And so they've decide they're going to dedicate it. And they dedicate this house of the Lord with joy. Joy, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it said joy is a feeling of high pleasure or delight. I like that, high pleasure. It's gladness. It's happiness. They experienced joy. Let's go on and look at verse 17. For the dedication of this house of God, and this house of God we're talking, this is the temple, They offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. A lot of uh, sacrifices going on here. Verse 18 says, And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what was written in the book of Moses. So this looks like success to me. The priests and the Levites, they're able to do the jobs that they were meant to do. They're able to fulfill the roles that were given to them back in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They're able to offer these sacrifices and be in the temple and do the work that God has told them. This is um, success. Let's go on to verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. They celebrated this feast in order to seek the Lord. I see a third outcome here. When we obey God, when we seek God, we have a deeper relationship with God, a deeper, closer, more intimate relationship with God. That was the outcome of their obedience in keeping the Passover. Now, the Passover 
you read about it in your homework. This was probably the most important holiday for the Jewish people and probably still is because this is remember, this is when they remember how they were slaves in Egypt and how God delivered them through Moses. Now, you know the story. God sent Moses and he goes to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. So he sends the nine plagues. Still, Pharaoh's not going to let them go. So God says, I'm going to send the 10th plague. And this is where the death angel is going to come to every household and take the firstborn in death. And so um, Moses tells the Israelites, you need to get ready because we're going to be going here. And before we do, kill the unblemished lamb and put the blood over your doors, top and sides. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over your home. And that's exactly what happened. And when they woke the next morning, the grief in Egypt was overwhelming as they woke up to find in every household their firstborn son had died, even in Pharaoh's. And so Pharaoh finally says, okay, go, go, Moses, take God's people and go. And now we read that these exiles are celebrating the Passover. And this would be um, 70 years since they have celebrated the Passover because now the temple is complete and they're able to... um, have the sacrificial lamb and celebrate the Passover as it was meant to be celebrated. And by the way, it says here the 14th day of the first month, you know, they finished the temple in the very end of the last month, which was February to March. So um, the 14th day of this first month would be the beginning of April. This is kind of their first month of the year. I mean, it is the first month. So that's the um, beginning of April. And Passover is around the same time that our Easter is. And there is so much symbolism in Jesus' death on the cross. Um, We know he's called the Lamb of God. We know that his shed blood on the cross is what keeps us from experiencing eternal death. And when Jesus was sitting in the upper room with his disciples, they were eating the Passover. That was the Passover. That was the time of the Passover when the next day he was going to go to the cross as our sacrifice. So much symbolism there. So we see that, and, and I also wanted to point out, because this is very important, it's going to be important in a couple weeks to come, it says here that the Israelites are eating it with those who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors. This is some Jews that were there that were following God and God alone. They weren't following these other gods that we had talked about a few weeks ago, but they were following God alone. They ate the Passover and celebrated it with the um, Jewish people as well. Why? To seek the Lord. They wanted a deeper, closer, more intimate walk with God. And let's look and see the final outcome in verse 22. For seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, this second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you looked at too. It follows right the next day after the Passover, and that was to symbolize the Israelites as they left Egypt. They didn't have time to let their bread rise, so they had no yeast, and they just ate their bread without it, which was like a flat cracker. And so they would celebrate without any yeast in their home for seven days, and this was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And we see here that they celebrate with joy. And we don't see joy once, but we see it twice. So what's the outcome of following God? Joy and more joy and more joy. It's joy. 
It's joy as they remember God's providence, God bringing his will to pass, even through unbelieving foreign kings. Now, you might have noticed and uh, thought, hey, what's up with this king of Assyria? I thought Darius was king of Persia. Well, I think Ezra, I thought that myself, and so looked it up. I think Ezra was wanting us to know that Assyria was the first world power that conquered the northern kingdom. We've talked about that. And then Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar, they became the world power, and they took the uh, southern kingdom into captivity. And now Persia is the world power. And Cyrus uh, and Darius and the others that we've read, they are the world power and the kings. And their favor on the Jews have allowed them to come back now. So this process has been complete. They're back in Jerusalem with the temple rebuilt, worshiping God like they are meant to worship. It was God's providence that had allowed all of this to happen. The discipline of his unfaithful children and now this favor of the king so they could rebuild the temple. They remember God's gracious hand in their lives and they are filled with joy. So we want to consider as we see God at work in our life, are, you, are we experiencing joy? Are you experiencing joy? I read this book. Some Egyptologists were uh, in some pyramids in Egypt, and they fell into a deep pit inside the pyramid, and it was total darkness. Total darkness. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place in a cave or something where it's totally dark, and it doesn't take very long to become disoriented because you don't know up from down, and you become disoriented in this total darkness. But one of them had a match, and they lit the match, and just that much light allowed them to see the sides of this pit and the top, and they were able to figure out a way out. And I thought that reminds me a lot of our walk with the Lord. You know, we get distracted and we start thinking about ourselves and we turn away and pretty soon we are in darkness. And it doesn't take very long being in that darkness before we're disoriented and we're stumbling around and we're not making good choices. But the minute we turn back and we call out to God, we follow God, we have our heart turned towards God, there's light. And we begin to see the path that we need to be on. You know, Following God wholeheartedly doesn't mean that we're never going to make mistakes. We are. We're not going to always do it exactly right. Moses didn't. David didn't. All through the Old Testament. We're not going to do it perfectly. But what God wants is that desire to love him, to make him first. That God is what we want to be about. And that's what Matthew 6.33 says. It kind of sums up everything that we studied today when it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Today I want us to consider, let's follow God wholeheartedly and consider that he will give you everything you need and consider the joy you will experience as you follow him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good. Father, we step out with small obedience and you are so quick to come to us and to bless us and to be with us, to give us courage, to take away our fear. Father, you've created us with special tasks and we're so grateful to that. Father, you are so good to us in so many ways. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories in it that encourage us to look to you, to look to you, to 
to follow you wholeheartedly. Father, that is our desire, that we would be women that want to follow you with our whole heart. We love you, Lord. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.